I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah here. And just a reminder that after the guests have gone, the conversation continues on our Twitter, Insta, and Facebook communities. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic. In particular, Twitter has been heating up lately, so if you're someone who likes to get into the thick of the discussion, or just weigh in with a friendly, charitable voice, our Twitter handle is at P of Charity. Enjoy the episode! Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. To first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. And every week we'll introduce a Principle of Charity personal challenge. The challenge this week is, can you enjoy being wrong? And can you let this help generate excitement and discovery in what others have to say, especially those that disagree with you? Emil, what's our topic for today? Thanks, Lloyd. Our topic today is meditation versus psychoanalysis, which offers the best path to reduce suffering. So what do we do with our mental suffering from everyday anger and disappointments to life-defining moments of grief and pain? You know, we're all dealing with our emotional life, much of which can be challenging. And in this episode, we're going to explore two great models, meditation and psychoanalysis, and look at what they have in common and how they differ. Meditation, particularly mindfulness meditation, has made its way into the West and permeates so much of society these days. The catchphrase mindfulness has become a mantra for how how we're meant to approach everything from how we eat to what we wear. But meditation itself asks us to do what many find unbearable, to simply sit and to become aware of our thoughts and feelings. In creating this little gap, we realize that by definition, we are not our thoughts and feelings and their grip on us loosens. Instead of being literally carried away by our anxieties and passions, a space opens up and we have a vantage point from which we can choose to act and react differently. And this is where meditation generally stops at a calmer, more peaceful, more in control place. But Buddhism, the spiritual tradition we most associate with meditation, sees meditation as a key stone on the path to no less than spiritual enlightenment itself. The idea as I understand it and have in moments experienced it myself is this. Once we recognize that we're not our thoughts and feelings, once we open up that little gap of awareness, we go searching for what and where we really are and soon find that the eye of the ego does not in fact exist, that we are to the extent that we are anything, just that state of awareness itself, always and eternally present, connecting us with everything. Now, psychoanalysis comes from an entirely different tradition, but weirdly shares much overlap with meditation. It too asks us to stop, to listen to our inner voices, and to create a gap of analysis between ourselves and the forces that move and shake us so vigorously. It sees humans as a bundle of contradictory impulses with much of ourself deeply hidden within our subconscious, 
out of view of our conscious minds. It sees our suffering as coming from adaptations we had to form in childhood, which kept us safe and still keep us safe from painful feelings. And we can see them in our patterns of behavior, but we can only break their spell if we're prepared to open ourselves up to our subconscious and to the repressed and often painful moments that we hide from. And all of this plays out in the very live dynamic between the patient and the analyst. Now, psychoanalysis doesn't promise happiness. It just tries to loosen the grip of unhelpful patterns of behaviors and thoughts. It recognizes that suffering is a part of life and it helps us to a life of greater depth, meaning and growth. Lloyd, I am fascinated by this topic as I've been both practicing meditation as well as been in therapy for quite a while, um, probably too long. And I know that you've recently gone deep into meditation and you have a background, of course, in psychology. And so many of our listeners would have tried meditation and various forms of therapy, including psychoanalysis, with the hope of reducing suffering and improving quality of life. Lloyd, who do we have to help us through all of this? Emil, our two guests today are Samaneri Jayasara and Sonia Vexler. Jayasara initially ordained as a nun in the Terava tradition in 2002 and lived in monasteries in both Western Australia and the United Kingdom. She then left monastic life but re-entered it in 2018 at the Santi Forest Monastery, where she helped to further maintain and develop Santi as a monastery for female monastics. In 2021, Jayasara moved to the Viveka Hermitage in southern New South Wales to allow more focus on a growing online Dharma project she had initiated. Emil, she has now thousands of subscribers globally. Sonia Vexler, our other guest, is a clinical psychologist and child, adolescent, and adult psychoanalyst. And importantly for this episode, Emil, the emphasis is on psychoanalysis. She completed her psychoanalytic training with the Sydney Institute of Psychoanalysis. Sonia has worked and trained in Australia and the United States. She has degrees from both Boston and Macquarie University, and her clinical work focuses on both simple and complex difficulties experienced by children, adolescents, and adults. Emil, this is a fascinating topic. As you said, we both have skin in the game here. We've both been in therapy. We both meditate. But there's a lot of crossover also between these two traditions, but also so much that is very different. They have a different view on whether and how happiness can be achieved. And they also have a different view on the approach and treatment for mental health issues as well as suffering. In a sense, our two guests are both healers, both giving their lives to helping people. So I'm expecting, Emil, a charitable discussion. But it'd be really great to tease out the differences of these two approaches. Let's bring them on. Thank you so much, Jayasara and Sonia, for joining us on this episode. Jayasara, let's start with you. Can you give us a, an understanding of, of meditation, how it works, how it might help reduce suffering? And we'll go to some of the more spiritual aspects a little bit later, but maybe just start with the sort of basics of meditation, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, it's a big question, and there are many, many levels and layers to it. But I, I think it's in a simplified way, the practice of meditation is about beginning to understand the way the mind works and to bring attention to that. And for many people, uh, you know, we, we kind of have this assumption that we, we know ourselves, but when people start to meditate, they often get quite surprised or shocked by the, uh, the levels and layers of what's going on there. And Sonia would know this doing 
analysis where you start to peel back the layers of the onion and uncover the shadow elements, the repressed stuff. So in many respects, it's a, it's a mental investigation. But it's more than just a mental. It's also looking at what's going on within the body and how we hold certain defences within the body. And, of course, you know, meditation encompasses or, you know, I guess the main part, depending on where you come mm. to it at. It's really about the spiritual too. So starting to really understand the nature of reality if you want to go to the depths of understanding meditation, it's about learning to investigate the nature of this so-called reality, what we take as reality, and all the assumptions and the conditionings that we've inherited from, in Buddhism, we'd say not just this life, but many lives, mm. and learning and investigating a much deeper reality to, to arrive at understanding what's called ultimate reality or the absolute reality. And it's only when we uncover the false that we could say that we can come out of suffering. And, and so when you sit there and if you focus on a mindfulness meditation or focus in on the breath or something like that and you become aware of what comes up, that sort of gap that's created where you suddenly are not carried away by mm. the sort of flow of your inner uh, urges, but you, you, you have a gap of awareness that allows you to be less at the mercy of what's coming up. Sure, yeah. Yeah, those gaps are, you know, for some people, just having a, a moment of where the mind's not caught up in its delusion and its conditioning processes is a great relief, you know. And I think that's why people turn to drugs because drugs can do that. They provide long gaps, but they don't last, as we know, and they have all sorts of problems. But I think that's why, you know, people are constantly seeking relief from this mental torture and mm. meditation is just a much more effective, healthy and ultimately long-term way to, to really uh, embed that shift and to, yep. to, to quieten the mind. But it's more than just quietening the mind, but that's the start. We need to quieten the mind so that we can see what's going on at the depths. Sonia, let's come to you and psychoanalysis. I mean, how, what is psychoanalysis? A lot of people don't really know what it is and you know we'll, we'll go to the other forms of therapy a bit down the track but if we could focus on psychoanalysis and how does it re help reduce suffering I mean what's what's the promise of it well psychoanalysis is about facilitating self-awareness a person comes to an analysis I don't think they come because they want to they come because they need to the self-awareness that happens or occurs and is is fostered in an analysis comes about through a focus on the patient's unconscious. Mm. And the unconscious exists irrespective of an analysis. It's just that it provides a frame in which to focus on it and examine it. The analyst, which is central to the analysis, provides an, an external frame for the unconscious, the patient's unconscious, and the frame exists. So it's not just the consulting room, it's the sessions, it's the frequency, it's the duration of the sessions, mm. it's the breaks, it's the fee. They're the external frame. And then there's the internal frame, which exists in the, the, the analyst, which is that the analyst has had their own analysis. So they, they're aware of what's in them to the best of their ability. They've been a patient mm. and they have a supervisor. So they have a third other 
examining their work and existing in their mind as well. And all these factors facilitate a frame in which the unconscious can be thought about and come to life. If a patient could come in, a person could come in and say, this is my problem and this is why, they wouldn't need an analysis. And But you, you hear people say, this is my problem, but they don't really know it at the depth in order to ameliorate their suffering. They need another. They need another person's mind to do that. In a sense, we don't know ourselves and the subconscious provides an avenue to better understand ourselves. But how does how does sort of understanding help us feel better? What happens? You unearth the subconscious. Maybe are you just in a, in a, in a greater world of pain? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a good point because I think that when a patient may begin an analysis, they can feel worse. This, I'm not doing a good job at selling analysis, am I? They can <laughs> feel worse if, yeah. um, in the beginning. Um, because, but things do come up and the idea of things coming up, things that they didn't know, whether it's memories, whether it's experiences, and then it actually maybe allows things to be worked through in a different way. So they're not carrying it around with them in the same kind of way. It's not just that it comes out, it's that it's, it's how it can be worked with and understood. So they were repeating patterns that come from places that they don't understand, that the conscious mind can't understand. And by bringing it out, you know, it, it sort of brings it into the light of day and it gives them the the tools in, in, in relationship with the analyst to be able to change how they live, change their relationships. Yes, yes, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, Freud famously said that the aim of analysis was to transform neurotic misery to common unhappiness, which is not that you won't be unhappy. It's not that you're always going to be joyous. It's just that it feels a bit more manageable. You'll have the range as well. That's another thing, having the range of feeling joy and distress. I mean, Jayasara, just looking at the more spiritual aspects, I mean, I guess many people are practicing mindfulness meditation as as a tool to feel calmer, to take the bite out of difficult feelings, give give us a greater sense of inner control or peace. But as I understand it within the Buddhist tradition, it's 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 the promise is that it's a path or a tool to the path to to enlightenment, to a, a sort of deeper recognition that there is no self and that the expanse of awareness that exists is, is, is all there is in the present. It's a sort of radical transformation that involves the dissolution of the ego. How do you see the the more narrow secular practice of meditation within the context of of, of of the broader um, spiritual tradition. People are coming at it as they would come to any sort of counselling or therapy. They want relief from suffering and the mindfulness, um, we'll call it the mindfulness trend, I suppose. Again, there's many different levels of it being offered, but mm. as a general sense, it's it's just offering people a way to, to be um, more peaceful and often for, for a lot of companies, it's about making people more productive. So it kind of, mm. in some ways, it kind of resonates with what Freud said and what Sonia just said about Freud's statement, just to um, move away from being unproductive, neurotic people to being kind of competent people in the world, but still with the the ups and downs of life and accepting that. So I don't know how many people who pick up mindfulness uh, you know, a lot of people don't understand where it's come from, which is from the Buddha's mm. teaching. And and mindfulness is just one of the factors that he taught. It's not the mm. whole path. So um, 
and but I think for a lot of people they might come at it be a little bit kind of skim the surface and then want to go a bit deeper so it has that to offer from a spiritual perspective if people pursue it further and further because they realize that just being happy and making money and and uh, you know achieving your mundane goals isn't really going to make you happy in the long run not not deeply happy because we all have to face our um, in- inevitable decline and demise and uh, you know how do we how do we move, face into death and and losing people we love and losing our bodies you know and and the fact that we're all going to get old and sick and uh, a lot of the mindfulness stuff doesn't deal with that uh, that dirty sort of stuff you know that that uncomfortable stuff you've got to kind of take take it all really with mindfulness the buddha's teaching if you want it all you have to you know, look look at the the eightfold noble path and not everything that he taught really but broadly do you see the sort of secular and i i guess it is could be like a a capitalist productive tool but it's also a tool to make people feel um calmer and more in control do you see that as a as a positive force is it similar to yoga coming into the west but people not understanding that Oh yeah, well, it's better than the opposite better of than you nothing. know. Yeah, absolutely, it's better. <laughs> better than unmindfulness, or or just you know just kind of becoming mindless consumers and promoting any any other sort of negative stuff. It's it's got a lot of positive stuff to offer, um, but it's just interesting because I've never come at it from that. I've always you know I delved into it f- from the depth straight away. So I do wonder how it is for people who just pick it up as a kind of a I don't know what you'd call it, just kind of a, a tool for productivity technology. and technology, you know, or another consumerist type tool. There must come a time where they go, oh, yeah, well, I've got everything. I mean, you just have to look at the people in the world who have got everything, you know, the good looks, the success, the career, and they're not happy. There's still so much stuff within those sort of people that, that is incomplete, and so it'd be interesting to know how 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 long this yeah. mindfulness craze is going to continue superficially or whether it's going to you know allow people to go deeper and deeper which i, I suspect I mean, it might at the risk of asking you the impossible question but could you try to explain what that leap is from mm. sitting with one's thoughts and feelings the mindfulness um experience to a genuine buddhist spiritual you know understanding of reality these things happen spontaneously there's no controlling this but i think when someone really penetrates uh, and has what you might call a, you know a complete ego death and shattering then or you know the the whole fabric of of reality turns upside down even for a, even mm. for a moment then people mm. realize that um okay, there's a lot more to this than just quietening my mind and feeling peaceful and mm. feeling confident about myself. So I think mm. when that happens for people, it, it can shake them up. But that can also happen not through meditation. It can happen through near-death experiences or deep, intense grief. Drugs. 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 Yeah. yeah, all sorts of things. And then people go, oh, God, there's a lot more to life than and you know the way I perceive life than I thought. And that often starts people on a spiritual sure. path. Yeah, great. Much great. deeper exploration. So, Sonia, can we come back to you and I guess go to the end goal of of psychoanalysis? I mean, some people see it as a, a bit of a glorified, endless navel gazing in a sense that you you mine the 
the knot of contradictory subconscious desires that make up yourself. But but where are you left? What's the end goal? And is is part of the aim just to know oneself better, even if it doesn't reduce suffering? And and is that a sort of end in itself? Or is the aim to feel better? And and if it's to feel better, is there evidence that it actually works? I think there is an end goal. Yeah, I do. I don't think it's just a sort of an eternity in in the sense of an analysis. But I think that the the hope at the hope for a successful analysis is that the analysis can continue in the patient independent of the analyst. Mm. Right? That, the, that the patient has been able to internalize the ability to, in a sense, carry on the work. So in that sense, it does continue forever, hopefully. But the actual analysis doesn't. Hmm. It does take a long time, and I think that probably is what you're kind of hmm. referring to with the uh, navel-gazing uh, endlessness. It does take a long time because it takes a long time for understanding to happen, for the dependency that occurs in in an, in an analysis, the regression that occurs, and this is all if an, an analysis is going well, which I think is quite contradictory for people. If people hear about someone in in a treatment where they feel, you know, stirred up, affected, uh, bereft when their analyst goes on a holiday, there would be people outside of that that would say, "I think what's going on? That doesn't sound good." But that's mm. part of a, that's part of a good analysis because that means something's happening, and that means that the person is is working in the analysis. So does it? So is that the trajectory that you're trying to deepen? It is about deepening experience. It is also about lightening the person from what they can't get out of themselves. Right. And I think I was I was interested as Jayasara was talking, like it, it, there's a lot of overlap um, in in that it is about facing the reality, one's own reality inside oneself. Hmm. And so at the end of an analysis, the work will go on in the person, but also that the patient can have more access to life and they have greater inner resources to do so. I sometimes wonder if meditation can miss helpful clues that can keep us stuck. For example, you know, if difficult feelings emerge during meditation and what you do is sit with them and acknowledge them, but you don't engage with them in the way that therapy does, you might, you know, you might miss feelings that may come from a deeper trauma or an adaptation pattern. And and without that knowledge, you you don't have the self-knowledge to change. I mean, do, do you think meditation can miss things that psychoanalysis can help to uncover and shift? Absolutely, and it does, and I've seen this in a lot of meditators and when I was younger I saw it in myself because people pick up things wrongly but you have to go through that and meet those obstacles and hopefully mm. learn about them. But one, it's, I guess it's what's called spiritual bypassing. So in, there's words like detachment in mm. Buddhism and people really misunderstand that term and think, well, therefore I shouldn't have any feelings and I should just cut off. And that's not not the way to do it. And even with the concept of anatta or no self, people pick mm. that up wrongly and think, oh, well, there's mm. no self, everything's empty, therefore nothing matters. And then they can, mm. in some traditions, you know, not so much within my tradition because we have what's called precepts or moral um, practices that we, we uphold, but in some traditions where they don't have a, a moral anchor, they can just use concepts like emptiness and nothingness to do whatever they like. So it goes on all the time. And, and you know, I have to look at some of the gurus that have gone right off 
the well-known yes. ones to see that yes. this is this is indeed the case. So yeah. And do you think you have to do you think you have to engage with the self to move beyond it, or you could just forget about the self and just you know wake up? Well, it depends what you mean by the self. Because... The ego, I guess the the sort of range of well, we can't of, help uh, but engage with the ego because we're mostly operating out of that all the time. So it's yeah. there writ large. We just have yeah. to understand it. And then when we really understand it, we come to see that it's actually no such thing as the ego. It's all, it's all just a, an illusion. But we, we, we engage with the illusion nonetheless, what we'd call kind of the play and the display. These things are happening uh, a bit like on a movie screen. You know, there's... Yeah what, 24 frames per second or something, 28 yep, frames per second. Right, and it gives yep. the, the impression of a continuity of a continuous self. But in reality, when you go behind and sit in the, the box where the, uh, the projector is being projected, you realise, oh, it's all single frames. And those single frames actually have no substance to them anyway. So yep. we, we learn to understand this notion of what the ego or the self is and it starts to dissolve and we have a better understanding of it and therefore it doesn't we don't fear it as much it doesn't control our life anymore yeah and it's a powerful illusion of the the narrative i'm i'm in the film and television business so aware of the uh the power of creating that illusion and yeah. um it can become it become our reality i mean sonia yeah. can, can i move to you and just sort of see if you could paint a picture of where psychoanalysis sits within the range of therapies. I mean, even before I researched this episode, I wasn't quite sure what psychoanalysis was as opposed to psychotherapy, as opposed to, I mean, I have an understanding of cognitive behavioral therapy, but what, are, what does it all mean? What does it all mean? It's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a very wide therapeutic world, isn't it? But essentially we can divide them up, you know, crudely, I think, between therapies that seek to um, like CBT or more d- directive therapies that are about yeah. symptom reduction and are about, you know, skilling up a person and, and yeah. they really have their place. Um, not everyone has the ability or not just the ability in terms of practicality but the possibility of having an analytic treatment. So for that mm. reason I think directive therapy such as CBT and ACT, which is I think acceptance commitment therapy or something mm. i'm not going to get that right but those kinds that sort of bag of therapies have a very um a real place and are very useful for people to have to to make use of they're about symptom reduction and they are about getting people going that's one sort of subset psychotherapy i think probably is some somewhere in the middle it's a really yeah. mixed bag i think it's really eclectic and people borrow things from different areas. I'm sure there are psychotherapists who will work analytically, some that don't at all. And so I think there's not a a sort of uniform approach in terms of psychotherapy. Yes. And then psychoanalysis is is in a sense the strictest, if you want to say it in that way, because the focus is is about self-awareness. It's not about making you happier. It's about it's a it's a long-term treatment. It involves frequent sessions and its aim is to facilitate self-awareness in the patient. It's a regressive mm. treatment mm. and it's at the center of it is the analytic relationship. And so that's why it takes so long. 
Well, it's Seems to me both analysis and the sort of I'm using meditation as a as a word that sits with you know for the the broader tradition here, Jaisara. But they both share a focus on the here and now, on the experience of the present. And as I understand analysis, our unconscious patterns are meant to reveal themselves in our in the patient's relationship with the with the analyst. You're literally projecting your past and your subconscious within the room in the present how important is the is the present relationship and that dynamic to to the healing process Fun, absolutely fundamental there are reams and reams of books written about the transference which is what you're referring oh, to transference yeah yeah the transference which is the patient's perception and experience of the analyst because the analyst takes a particular role where they sit back, the patient doesn't know about the analyst's life and they become not a, not a, a, a completely blank screen but they become a screen with which to, and a canvas with which the unconscious experience, past experiences come, come alive in the room and then when they're alive they can be better understood and they're more accessible and they have the chance to be worked with. They're not yeah. in terms, they're not talked about, they're right there. And and you can see them alive in the room if a patient is 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 distrustful because of an early pattern. They then are distrustful of the analyst and you can actually You've got to you can work with that. Yes. Exactly. And I you know it would seem that the quality of the analyst becomes of paramount importance because you're not a cognitive behavioral therapist who is providing tools that in some ways could almost become a uh, an app um you 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 are you're doing it um as two human beings alive in the room jay sarah how important is the guru or the meditation guide or or you know we you mentioned that some of those people have not been anchored in the sort of moral framework and have gone awry but how far can you go without that sort of um, guru or guide in in the sort of meditation spiritual practice? Well, it depends who you ask. You know, some some teachers say it's impossible to go very far without a teacher, but many teachers have gone all the way without a teacher too. So there's a lot of contradictions there. But um, those, those opportunities for projection and seeing where we project, you know, certainly from my tradition and our, our teachers say that, Every moment is a, is a moment to see that and every person you interact with is a mirror of yourself. So if you're projecting mm. um, some unresolved emotions onto even the stranger in the street, you know, they, they actually become your, your best teacher. So, mm. you know, when you pick up the Dharma like that or the practice like that, it's um, everybody's, everybody's here to teach us and for us to awaken to and we are constantly projecting our unresolved stuff onto people and it's an opportunity to awaken from that, you know. So everyone's our you, therapist, really. <laughs> everyone's our analyst. If you can read the signals properly, but maybe if you need a teacher, if you... Yeah, exactly. The teacher, yeah, the teacher will point it out if you're a bit thick. But uh, if, you, <laughs> if, the, if the teacher's saying... Look, you know, use everything to awaken. Nature is one of our greatest teachers and nature has always been a great teacher for for people, for masters to awaken. So um, we we learn to to listen and we learn to read and understand what's going on and what mm. what we're projecting because everything is just a projection of our minds. And when we start to accept that, then, you know, you don't need, not, I don't want to dismiss Sonia's 
wonderful skills and career, but you don't need an analyst if you if you everything is your teacher, too. So, uh, but of course, an, an analyst offers you skills that you you might miss otherwise. Most and I guess do. a meditation teacher offers you Same pointers thing. where you where yeah. you've um, you know misread the teachings or where exactly. you've misread yourself. Yeah, and it's okay to misread. That's the thing. We've got to get it wrong. If we don't get it wrong, we don't learn. So. Um, you know, we've, we've got to butt our heads against the wall and then then wake up from it. So, Jay, Sarah, what's what's the role of meaning within the Buddhist spirituality? I mean, our egos, the place of our hopes and dreams, the social relationships, feels to people who haven't taken the spiritual path as that's the playground of a meaningful life, and we want an ego that's well adjusted. And I imagine that that's really what psychoanalysis is about, trying to create a more, a better adjusted and a healthier ego, not to lose our ego. I mean, the ego can also be a lot of fun. I mean, I sometimes wonder if the if Buddhists are scared of getting hurt. Isn't the ego also a great place of meaning, fun and enjoyment in life? Why, why would one want to give all that up? The thing is, you don't give up the ego. You just really understand the ego. And, and one of the, the first deep signs of awakening is recognizing, uh, seeing through personality view. And because we attached, we believe that we are these body minds, these personalities, and we think yeah. that's who we are. And we, we, you know, we either like them or loathe them, or depends what day of the week it is or what mood we're in. We like it or love it. We're high or low. We're up and down. And so when we, you know, the whole point is to see through that delusion. So when you're free from the delusion of believing in an ego or a personality, uh, it's very liberating. You don't, Can you enjoy you, it? Can you enjoy then? Does well, yeah, because you're not dictated. You're not dictated by it. It doesn't mean you, you lose a personality. You just don't yeah. take it seriously. You don't. One of my teachers said, "Don't take your life personally," and it's like that's that's a per, perfect teaching. <laughs> that's a great teaching. You know, it's don't take it personally because we aren't what we think we are. We think, you know, we're conditioned from day one to believe that we are these persons, these bodies, these minds, these emotions, these personalities. And, you know, if we get dealt a bad a bad set of cards, we're, we're miserable. If we get dealt a really good set of cards, we're conceited. Um, but, you know, it's always, it's always a roller coaster ride if we believe in these personalities. So when we don't take them seriously and we don't believe that that's who and what we are at a fundamental level, then that's what liberation is all about. I mean, I guess, though, you are losing slightly from the outside here, looking in, you are losing some of the buzz that goes with deep attachment, you know, from over identifying with oneself, the sense that today is so important to me, because I have a really important meeting. And if I do well, it'll really affect my life. And if I do badly, and you can sort of, or my relationship with a friend is of such importance, because it gives me this sense of of meaning and purpose. And that sort of over identifying with the self is the locus of, of a lot of richness in one's life. Is it? I don't know. I think for me, it's like when, whenever you're really over identified and attached to something, it's quite stressful. And you get really, really high and, and tight and tense. Whereas if you go, oh, yeah, it's an important meeting. I know it's important. I'm feeling, I'm feeling a bit kind of hyper about it. Just look at it properly and then it can lose its sting. And it's much more peaceful then. Is, is the aim, Sonia, to be peaceful and for things to lose their sting or to be sort of more intense and, and, and richer? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> you're talking about dichotomies, aren't you? You're presenting. I very am. I'm, I'm, I'm probably creating false dichotomies. <laughs> oh, there, that is a false dichotomy. I think it is. I mean, I, I think your example, Emil, which is, you know, I've got a really important meeting. It means a lot to me. You know, yeah. it, it means an enormous amount to me. The question is, what does it mean to you? And why does it mean so much to you? Now, mm. is it because everything that I stand for exists in this meeting? Well, I think that's rather unhelpful and, and, <laughs> Right, but 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 well, and it also will probably mean you won't do very well, because you can't live and die according to external decisions or external mm. achievements. It's not going to be helpful. It's not going to be healthy. Mm. I think that's what JSR. I don't know if I'm right, JSR. I'm not. Yeah, I've, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so that's what the I, that, attachment to all those things. But yeah. but it doesn't mean like from my perspective. I think having you know, for things to be meaningful and for things to be important is is fundamental to life, mm. whether that's people, whether that's your work, you know, to be to have not have that, well, I think that's that's not in anyone's interests. Mm. But it's about mm. the meaning of it and the significance of it and whether a person can can manage it, where it comes from in them, I, th- I guess. Yep, and, and not wanting to let external forces dictate your sense of self and your sense of safety and enjoyment for it to have deeper resources. Yeah, I mean, I think your example is a really interesting one because a person might think, you know, this is going to make or break me in terms of myself or in terms of others. It depends where the judgment or the significance and the importance is coming from within the person. I think that maybe that it, yeah. you know, that that dissects it a bit because it's it's quite it's a good example actually. Is yeah. this the really important meeting, Emil? <laughs> <laughs> I'm under a lot of pressure. Gonna make or break here. you. I'm under a lot of pressure here. <laughs> Relax, <laughs> it's not a big deal. We'll book in for sessions after this. Um, this is a real a little bit of a a jump, Jayasara, to into reincarnation because I. I feel like I have an understanding of meditation in the secular sense and of the spiritual um, dimension that you talk about and have had experiences like that. But how essential is reincarnation to true spirituality? I mean, a lot of Western spiritual leaders feel you can uncouple enlightenment from reincarnation. Oh, yeah, sure. It's not necessary to believe anything. You know, within Buddhism, anyway, you don't have to believe in re- We call it rebirth. The Buddha taught about that and it can be helpful and some people have uh, direct insights into seeing their past lives but you, if you don't, if it's kind of a bit weird and you don't want to accept it, that's fine. It's a bit like believing in ghosts. You know, in Asia everybody believes in ghosts and a lot of people see them and in the West we're like, no, nah, don't believe in ghosts and uh, generally most people don't perceive them so it's not necessary (laughs) we we can see rebirth happening we can see rebirth happening in this life anyway from moment to moment you know we're not the same person we were even you know this morning everything's changed science tells us where our cells are constantly changing so we can see it happening from moment to moment I was thinking that meditation and psychoanalysis both place their trust in the actual experience of the person themselves. They're not ideologies that tell us what we should feel or experience. They're, they're like pathways to revealing what's what's going on inside us. But at the same time, both do have a pretty clear set of theories and guides that prompt us along the way. So, so Sonia, I'm wondering, how do you see that line between suggestion 
and then overly in- influencing a patient to believe something. And, you know, just thinking about some of those false sexual abuse memories and times when analysts are prompting and creating um, experiences in patients. I'm not sure I agree, actually, because I do think there is a danger, but I think in all intimate relationships, like an analytic relationship for a kind of common mind and a and an understanding, you know, wanting to please or colluding with one another. I think that's possible. I mean, the patient is asked, the, the patient's main task is just to speak whatever's in their mind. So mm-hmm. they direct the the session. It's not, mm. it's like the analyst doesn't even begin the session. Mm. They just, they just bring whatever is in their mind to, to talk about. And the analyst can think and reflect what the meaning is. Um, so. But that has an influence, doesn't it? When the analyst says, well, have you considered your dream might suggest this? Mm. It's, it's not a neutral statement, you know, and no, you're in a vulnerable place as a patient, you know, very, you know, connected with your subconscious. And you're like, well, actually, maybe. It, maybe that's right. Well, I think I think that's right. I think that the analyst needs to know, and I think I think that we get taught how powerful our position is, and to be mindful that what we say has huge ramifications in how the patient hears what we say. We might think we're saying A, but the the patient can hear B. So I think we're taught that, and that's where I think our own analysis comes in very keenly because we have to know if we we know ourselves and the dangers that we can fall into. Jai Sarah, I think when I'm doing a guided meditation, for example, and, and told to to look for the observer of my thoughts, I sometimes slightly feel like I'm being manipulated, that the prompt <laughs> is almost forcing me to certain conclusions. But I'm told that of course it's all it's a science which allows you to you know just get to understand and um, you know the true nature of, of of my mind and it will be revealed to me but yet there is this very strong prompt is is meditation more of an ideology than it admits to being or is the spiritual path more ideological than it admits to being depends on your meditation teacher i mean people can manipulate and make suggestions within meditation and um, but that 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 example you just g- gave was more of a koan. Really, it was a question. You know, yeah. look to look. It wasn't telling. It wasn't telling you the answer. So what what was what was your conclusion, Emil? <laughs> well, my my conclusion is that I, I I don't exist. Don't you? Who's talking now? Hopefully, you'll tell me. This is this is the fun part of meditation. <laughs> But it is a there is a line there with the the, the koan practice that there is a power in asking questions. I guess that's yeah. probably the question I'm asking uh, to both of you that you can't necessarily hide behind the innocence of asking a question because they do create a framework within which you know answers uh, need to be given, and they're both powerful questions. The questions of koans mm. are powerful questions mm. that provoke responses, and the questions of dream interpretation are very powerful questions um, themselves. Well, we could just yeah. keep quiet and then <laughs> yeah. you could just uh, see what comes up Yeah, and there'd be no question. And that's how a lot of teachers, real great masters, taught just using silence. So the questions have always been uh, like in the Zen tradition when Bodhidharma started teaching, they didn't have any of those kinds or 
the Huao To, what's called that, the Huao To, which is the holding a question like, who am I? Uh, who is carrying this corpse around? And they said they had to introduce them because people couldn't get it. <laughs> they you know, we couldn't just kind of go, okay, look and see. I'm giving you nothing. Uh, yeah, and so they it was just a skillful means, that's all. But they're open-ended questions where to, to some extent there is no answer to them, you know. I guess and, that, that is a similarity to analysis where, as I understand it, Sonia, very strict analysis don't offer too much. They really try to force the patient to bring themselves to the room. If you, if you think about a session, you're hoping that the patient is talking a lot more than the analyst yeah. because it's for the patient to speak and to find their way yeah. um, with assistance, but, but primarily it's, it's the patient's time to speak, um, not to be professed to or, um, or to be taken in an opposite direction. How does Buddhist meditation differ from the other meditative traditions within Hinduism and the spiritual traditions of Judaism and Christianity and Islam? How would you describe that world of spirituality and and where and where Buddhism sits within all of that? Well, they're all come out of such different traditions and paradigms and frameworks. So all the words, uh, a lot of the practices are different. But as you perhaps know, Emil, from my YouTube channel, I include yeah. all the spiritual traditions in my readings and meditations because, you know, there comes a point where you start to understand that at their essence they're all pointing to the same thing. They're just using yeah. different words, that's all. And then when people get into argy-bargy about who's better and what's the best and have religious wars, it just shows people's ignorance because if someone... Is, is a true master or has had true insight into reality. It's There's only one true reality. So they're, But they're all going to express it differently. Uh, and we just get attached to words and concepts. And, and then because we, we always like to feel that we're on the best team, we have to talk the other person down. So to me, the essence of all spiritual traditions, and to some extent, if it goes deep enough, it's where psychoanalysis and therapy goes. It'll go deep and uh, you'll end up in the same place eventually. Lloyd, I'm going to throw a question to you and then sort of leave the rest of the podcast for you. You know, you've recently become a meditation convert, as I understand, slightly obsessed, mm -hmm. as, as you tend to get. Uh-oh. And you also have a doctorate <laughs> in, in psychology. But, you know, briefly, what do you think the best path to suffering is, uh, to alleviate suffering? How do, you, mm. how do you weigh up the pros and cons of the two models? I've been reflecting on that quite substantively. I mean, I've been in therapy myself, was sort of somewhat trained in what would be called psychodynamic therapy. I've I've really only very recently discovered meditation and 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 mindfulness. I feel pretty much like a novice, but for me the power of meditation and mindfulness is I feel that it's it's almost a practice of life. And what I felt pretty frustrated with, and I'd love, Sonia, to come back to this a bit later in, in a conversation with you, is I sometimes feel that I'm not sure what I do with the insight. I see, I, I often have felt quite insightful about myself, but haven't been able to apply it. I mean, I think of that even in my business world. 
I'm I'm a coach to some very senior executives. I can coach them, but I could never do what I'm almost saying they should do. Um, It's it's, it's out of my depth. Um, I mean, people write books all the time about in self-help, but they can't really do any of it. And so what is the what is the jump between that self-insight and the actual day-to-day practice? And in one sense, I find that meditation gives me a little bit uh, more of that. It puts a lot more onus um, onto me to be happy, to deal with my own thoughts rather than to almost have what I call a happiness contract, which is if only that would happen, I would be happy. Oh, great. Okay. Well, over to you now, Lloyd. What our listeners can't see because we are on Zoom is a picture of Jayasara and Sonia. And uh, we often have very robust guests on the show who are quite opinionated, uh, quite strong in their views. The experience that I have with both of you is that I feel there is just an, in your essence, a way of recognizing the value of others. It's hard to describe, but it, 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 feels, it feels like that. And that is one of the core principles of the principle of charity, is it's very hard to disagree and not get polarized if you don't recognize the value of the other. And so I just wanted to say to both of you, that was very, very striking, uh, or is very striking. And, and I hope our listeners can, can experience some of that just in the audio. But let's go back to one of the, the things that we like to do on the show, and that is to, to identify in the principle of charity, what is the strongest argument of the other? And Jayasara, I, I would start with you. When you think about psychoanalysis or your understanding of it and what you heard today, what would you say the strongest points of Sonia's argument or psychoanalysis is? I feel that the relationship is perhaps the most potent and transformative thing that's being offered in psychoanalysis. And if someone is has already done a lot of work on themselves, which you, you have to do to be an, an analyst, and has gone through the the pain and suffering of that has to be felt through that process, then they bring that compassionate heart into that relationship and become a really caring, supportive guide on that inner journey because that inner journey is uh, very frightening for a lot of people and if it's not navigated properly, uh, you know, if we try to do it by ourselves, uh, if especially if people come in with a lot of unresolved trauma uh, and try and figure it out ourselves or use un- very unskillful means, then that's going to go awry. So having a skilled listener and guide with a compassionate heart is probably the the strongest thing that's being offered there. And Mm. the fact that that person is also willing to be in it for the long term is, um, you know, kind of remarkable. It's not what's offered in a lot of therapies. It's, you know, I know in London they give them really traumatised people with lots of things. You know, here's six or 12 sessions of CBT. You should be fine by now Mm. at the end of it, and it doesn't work that way. So it's a commitment that's being offered, a genuine deep commitment with someone who's already committed to themselves. Wonderful. Sonia, what would you add? What, what do you think Jayasara has left out? I, I actually think, Jayasara, you did such a great job. I, 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 I thought that you really captured, really, honestly, about the, the essence of, 
of the analytic endeavour really and and its uniqueness and what sets it apart from other things and other treatments. It is the commitment. It is the, the commitment to a person for however long it takes and that's that really does set it apart from from other therapies. So no, I, I don't know if I've any, got anything to add. I think that's a really good summary. When you think of Jaya Cyrus' position on Buddhism, mindfulness, what do you think the strongest point of view or argument, what would that be? What came to me was when Jaya Cyrus said, that one of her teachers said, don't take your life personally. And I thought that was a really lovely reflection on how to manage what can feel to live a persecuted life or, or time of life. And so I was thinking about that. It really, it, it, there's a lot of overlap, of course, in, in, in psychoanalysis, but I was thinking that, that what really seems to be offered is something that is accessible. That's a very accessible way of thinking about things. And it would also be very, I think my sense is very immediately helpful. I also really liked and what resonated in what Jayasara was saying I felt that the idea of meditation and that a person can do it when they want, how they want, with someone else, not with someone else, I think the flexibility is very attractive and very useful. Um, it's actually, that, that's what, yeah, that's what I thought was a, a really big positive, that someone can really make use of it in an accessible way. Jasara, what, what, what do you think Sonia has left out or that you'd like to add? Well, I think that the strongest part is is that it's an opportunity for people to really fundamentally come out of suffering once and for all. And it may not happen this lifetime, but it's the path. It's Because uh, I guess in my tradition, the Dharma is seen as a precious jewel. So if one has access to that and is graced or given access to that, then you actually are being given the most uh, priceless gift that you'll ever receive in your life and then, then it's up to you to work with it and and uh, to uncover what what it's pointing to and it you know I guess the flexibility is part of it you know it's going to take some people many lifetimes other people might realize wake up completely this lifetime but if you've got it and you don't uh, recognize that it's how precious it is you're you're really throwing away a priceless jewel. Part of the principle of charity is, is deep self-reflection, trying to find the truth. Both of you in your own different traditions are attempting to do that. What I would like to know is, and, and this is one of the things, Jai, sorry, I wanted to come to you and, and Sonia also, but when I, when I hear often on podcasts or in meditations, uh, Buddhists talk and refer to the Buddha I often wonder, is anybody critiquing the Buddha? Is anybody saying, no, this was a few hundred years ago. I mean, the Buddha couldn't have been right on everything. Well, I'm not overly concerned, but, you know, it was more than a few hundred years ago. It was 2,600 years. And he, his teachings were never written down until at least 300 years after he passed right. away. So everything has to be taken in that context that, People change things. They, they, they. You know, they. There were apparently amazing beings that had these memories that could remember the suttas, and they tried as, uh, as, as well as they could to stick to what the Buddha said. But we know things get changed because people have 
different agendas. And so if you wanted to get into a scholarly thing, there, there are some really great Buddhist monks and nuns who um, have done that work and will show you where there's some inconsistencies. But that doesn't bother me because I think one of the things we know for sure that the Buddha said in one of the, the famous suttas was, don't believe me. <laughs> Work out your own salvation mm, with diligence mm, and that you mm. shouldn't ever believe someone based on tradition, hearsay, because it's in the scriptures. It's only when you know these things are true for yourself should you accept them. Mm. So, the, yeah, the Buddha wasn't asking you to believe or accept what he said. Test it out for yourself. Yeah. What is the culture of disagreement, though, in Buddhism? Culture is why we behave. It sits there. It's often invisible. But when there is disagreement, what's been your experience in the Buddhist culture around disagreement, for example, around homosexuality or abortion? I mean, how, how do Buddhists disagree? Well, there are so many different sorts of Buddhists and Buddhist traditions, Lloyd, and I know some of them can get um, pretty vicious, and, I, and I've heard that, but uh, and argumentative, but... Within my tradition, I guess um, there there are many disagreements, particularly over the role of the ordination of women, for example, mm -hmm. the higher ordination. And uh, sometimes it's got really split and nasty. Mm. But wherever there's a disagreement, if you know, if you come back to how the Buddha asked us to look at that, it was always to look at our own reactions and how much uh, anger and hatred we're bringing into those disagreements. And can we have discussions, you know, like your whole principle of charity here, mm, mm. in a way that that's, uh, shows we're willing to listen and mm -hmm. let go and not attach to views and opinions because it's attachment to views and opinions that's one of the biggest obstacles on the path of mm -hmm. meditation. And, and Sonia, I mean, one of the big critiques, as I understand it, around psychoanalysis is that the claims that it actually help the patient cannot be tested. I mean, you've probably heard this over and over again. And, and that's, by the way, not unusual for many different parts of, 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 of the world, um, whether it's diet or um, other dimensions of behavior. What's your view on that? Well, I would actually dispute those claims because I think that historically there, it was very, very hard to to measure or um, research analysis. There has been a lot of research and, and, and that was the criticism. It's not really true. I mean, there's lots of research about looking at analysis or looking at psychotherapy, analytic psychotherapy and its effectiveness. And actually, uh, I think Jonathan Shedler has done a lot of research on mm. that about, you know, the sort of long-lasting therapeutic gains that a patient gets from psychoanalysis versus other more short-term therapies. So it is my, the problem, I suppose, at times can be the that every analysis is so different it's not a manualized treatment, and for that reason, it isn't suited to a particular kind of scientific research. But I think we have enough uh, research that continues on and anecdotally in knowing the therapeutic gains that patients get. I also think that a lot of um, effectiveness that comes out of other treatments overlap with what psychoanalysis brings, which is the focus on the relationship, mm. whether it's, and it's called something different, the therapeutic alliance. Mm, 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 um, but, and, and no, and sometimes people can make use of that in shorter term treatments. 
but for other people they can't. Mm. So it, it is hard to test, but it's actually not true that that it, that it lacks mm. a scientific uh, basis okay. in terms of research. What I wanted to tease out after Emil's conversation was maybe just tease out how you would approach things practically. So if you don't mind, if you can just entertain this thought experiment for a moment. I've got an opportunity. We get an opportunity for Putin to come to both of you, Sarah and Sonia. And he says, the world rests on both of your shoulders now. You've got 15 minutes with Putin. That's all you've got. What would you do in those 15 minutes? Well, I'd, I'd ask him what he what 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 he's here for, and what he would uh, if he's got any questions. I mean, he's mm-hmm. highly unlikely to sit in front of me, and uh, he would see that I'm a Buddhist nun. Okay, but what I would be doing internally, which yes. uh, you wouldn't see, would be that I would be uh, practicing metta, loving kindness. I see, and r- probably recognizing the great suffering that this being is. Um, currently experiencing and probably going to inherit inherit for many lifetimes to come through his actions. So um, without making too many judgments about that, I would hopefully feel some sort of loving kindness towards him and, and be able to generate that and that if he wanted to ask any questions uh, or sit in silence and practice meditation, I'd be happy to give him some guidance. But um, from what I understand, he's got some fairly significant health problems. He can't sit still. He can't keep his foot or his arm still for for a second. Apparently, I don't, they don't know if it's Parkinson's, but mm. he's got a lot of things already manifesting in his body that are showing some signs of great. But stress. you would practice. You would practice loving kindness um, and and show that to him. But largely in those fifteen minutes, you would leave it up to him. Of course. Yeah, well, I'm not going to give him a lecture. You're not going to give him a lecture. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to tell him what to do. Mm. Sonia, what would you do in your 15 minutes? <laughs> if he said he was being forced, well, we don't have a patient, do we? If he said I came because it was a suggestion and I took it up, um, oh. then potentially he's open to reflecting and understanding destructiveness mm-hmm. and um, and his his aggression and and our possible delusion. I mean, that's just what I read. I, mm. And so I guess I would I would do something quite similar to to Jayasara in that I wouldn't be lecturing him, but I would ask why now and want mm. to know mm. what has led him mm. to be where he is now. Just so that I had. I, I mean, I think that's you know, I think that's interesting in both of your approaches because what is true. I think from the evidence is when we try and influence people through lecturing them, it generally is inefficient, it's a waste of time, and ineffective. And that despite our intuition that we should tell people, the best way to influence people frequently is through understanding. Uh, That's if you want to influence them. There are obviously certain situations where you don't want to influence them. Uh, You have to do other things outside of influence. Jasara, I just want to come to you again, if you don't mind, on... When you were speaking to Emil, you spoke about the ultimate responsibility is with ourselves, no matter what the conditions. The world is dysfunctional. Bad things are going to happen. The ultimate responsibility is with ourselves. Is there a time when you think that that can lead to blaming the victim? It could if it's not understood properly. But what I mean by take responsibility for yourself, that doesn't cancel out taking action in the world. 
but it means that whatever action you take in the world comes from a much deeper place of self-awareness and understanding so that whatever action you take is not about changing or forcing Vladimir Putin to be any other way, but whatever action you take towards Vladimir Putin is going to be informed from a place of self-awareness. So, you know, we, we I think both Sonia and I realise that you can't, you can't deal with someone like Vladimir Putin in the way that people perhaps fantasise. I'm going to tell him what to do and he's going to fix the world and I'm going to be the hero because I've saved the world, which is what that whole scenario is about. It's recognising that, yeah, we do want to change people and that's part of the problem. But when people feel that they're not being judged and that you have unconditional acceptance of them, even what we would deem horrible tyrants, but we're not judging them like that, we, we see them as a suffering human being, then change will happen naturally. But we're not sitting there going, okay, well, if I send him meta, then that's going to change him either. It's not having an agenda, but it does recognise through one's own practice that you see that when you come from a place of unconditional love and acceptance, things change in the world and in other people. So mm. you get out of the way. If you get out of the way with your own agenda and ideas and desire to control others and the world, it's a much better place to be. It's a much more effective and powerful place. So it's a place of compassion. Josira, you've chosen a, a monastic life. Why have you chosen, it would seem to me, quite an extreme life rather than just to be a practitioner. It doesn't feel extreme to me. It feels like I'm living the life that uh, resonates most for me, that's mm. supportive in my practice. And uh, no- nothing I do is particularly extreme either. Mm. But maybe the outfit, the gear, can't help that. That's part of the tradition that we've inherited. <clears throat> but um, when I go to bed at night and meditate, I get into my tracksuit pants, you know, but nothing I do in my life is particularly extreme, but maybe to some people it is because I'm celibate. Mm-hmm. I don't drink alcohol and I don't, uh, don't eat after 1 p.m. I don't have a job. <laughs> I don't earn money. I rely on the goodwill and support of others. That's it. Pretty radical. I think, Emil, on that note, I'm going to thank both of you. The principle of charity also demands that we don't disdain complexity. We don't simplify things down to one idea um, and therefore dismiss others. And I, I would say my experience of both of you is exactly that. I just have loved your way of communicating um, around the nuances, the complexity of the other, um, some of the self-criticism. Thank you so much uh, for coming on our podcast and uh, really appreciate it. Emil, any final words from you? It's just been fantastic. And I love the way that both the traditions turn the spotlight back on the the questioner because in the end of the day... (laughs) That's the most powerful way we we can influence or not influence. I guess in the end of the day, there's a limit to what you can do from the outside and not from the inside. So it's been great to hear both the, the approaches and thanks so much for your time. Thank you again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this discussion, we'd really appreciate a review wherever you get your podcasts. And we encourage you to hop onto our principal charity socials and get involved in the conversation yourself. See you next time.
We are at the end of an era and on the precipice of a new one. What do we keep? What do we leave behind? Hear from 16 thinkers, including Stephen Fry, Roxanne Gay, Slavoj Zizek, Walid Ali, Naomi Klein, Peter Singer, Sam Moston, and more. Eight conversations, eight responses in sound, one podcast to record this moment. Subscribe to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas wherever you find your podcasts and join us at The In-Between. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.